Um, it's um, Tina Lundquist-Faust, co-president of Houston PetSet, and it's another Conversations for the Animals um, with Tama. Hi, I'm Tama Lundquist, uh, the other co-president of Houston PetSet on this beautiful fall morning in Houston. Yes, and we are with Nicole Passmore-Cohen um, this morning, and she um, came to us kind of organically, but she's got an um, interesting um philosophy topic on animals, dogs, breeds, and that kind of thing. So we'll let her introduce herself and um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and what we're talking about today. Yeah, sure. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Um, and, and so I, just a little about myself. Um, so I actually have taken a bit of a, a non-linear path to get to th this research. Um, my day job is actually as a consultant, um, but I've always had a passion for numbers and for animals. And so I've been able to um, blend those two passions together when I pursued my master's in animal behavior at, at Hunter College. And um, during that, I um, met Sarah Elizabeth Biosier, who uh, is has a PhD in, in the animal behavior world and is kind of an expert on all things dog cognition. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to join her lab, which is called the Thinking Dog Center. And the Thinking Dog Center is um, an area of Hunter College that looks at dog cognition and runs a bunch of different studies on kind of all things companion animal. And um, it's a great organization. Highly recommend you, you check it out. Um, and so for my thesis, uh, I worked with Sarah on um, looking at breed labels in shelters. And so that isn't as much dog cognition, but it kind of, I, I took my own spin on kind of dog conservation in terms of the cycle of different companion animals. Uh, obviously, you know, sometimes dogs are purchased and then they end up in a shelter or they're strays and they end up in a shelter. And so we wanted to look at, okay, what can we do? What helps get the dog out of the shelter? What, what makes it so they can find their next stop, their next home? Um, and so it's, uh, what I found, uh, what I did was I worked with the shelter, a shelter in New York called Bidewee. Mm -hmm. uh, and what Bidewee did was around in January of 2018 or so, they uh, removed read labels from their adoption cards. So if you are at a shelter and you look at all the different adoption cards, they, um, they sometimes mention the type of breed. Um, however, research has shown uh, just across the board that a lot of times those people at the animal shelter, not just at Bidewee, but at lots of animal shelters, don't actually know the breed, <laughs> breed yeah. of the dog. You yeah. know, there's no science behind it. Um, it's not a process usually based on science or DNA. It's usually based on intuition, prior experience, and just simply physical appearance. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, how dogs are labeled is inconsistent and varies by shelter. Um, and so these labels can really impact a dog's time to adoption. Um, read labels such as a pit bull or a German shepherd can come with a stigma of, um, aggression or difficulty to uh, manage. And then those labels can make a dog can make an adopter hes hesitant to adopt the dog. Sure. And so actually a previous study done in 2016 by Dr. Lisa Gunter and colleagues found that when uh, breed labels were used on kennel cards in a shelter in Orange County, Florida, 
only 52% of the pit bull type dogs were adopted during that time period. Wow. However, when the breed labels were removed, that rate went up to 64%. And so Baidui in January 18, off of that study, removed the breed labels. Um, and so the question was, did removing the breed labels improve outcomes for the dogs at Baidui? Um, so what I did was I looked in this, in the simplest case, I looked at the data before the length of stay for the dogs before the breed labels were removed and after the breed labels were removed. And I did this using their uh, kind of shelter tracking database called PetPoint. Mm -hmm. um, and so I looked at basically two 16 month time periods, one that was fully before they removed breed labels and one that was fully after they removed breed labels. Right. Um, and there was a significant difference. Um, the dogs who, Baidui has three locations. And so the dogs across all three locations, um, time to adoption went down around a week once they removed breed labels. Um, and on average, it was 8.3 days, which is a significant amount of days. Right. Um, and we found that this was statistically significant. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, that was kind of the key finding was mm -hmm. that the breed labels were, the once you remove the breed labels, the time to adoption did go down. Nicole, so are there? Do you know of any other shelters in the United States that, that have done this, removed the breed labels? Uh, so yes, there's there are a lot. Um, there's actually following the first study I referenced, the one in 2016 by Dr. Lisa uh, Gunter. She um, a, a, a number of shelters made uh, recommendations to remove breed labels, and by the way, followed suit along with other uh, organizations. I believe um, a number of the major shelters such as the ASPCA don't use breed labels anymore. Um, and I think most play, but what there isn't is continued research across the board on um, did removing breed labels make a difference? Um, because each shelter is very local. Um, so the study that Dr. Gunter did was in Orange County, Florida. Well, the makeup of dogs that are gonna come into a shelter in Orange County, Florida is gonna be very different than the makeup of dogs that are gonna come into a shelter in New York. Mm -hmm. And in addition, um, there are, is a difference between kind of what we call limited, um, uh, limited admission shelters, which mm -hmm. means that the shelter can look at all the dogs that come in and, and kind of choose where the dogs are coming from versus open admission shelters, right. which is where open intake shelters, yes. where they can, um, any, any dog has to be accepted. Usually you find that with um, municipal shelters right. and city shelters, but those run by local government. Those, do those shelters don't just take cats and dogs, but I know in the, um, Manhattan municipal shelter. Um, I've I've heard stories of there being monkeys and alligators in the past. Not not commonly, <laughs> right? But um, and so, you know, the pro, the you all you have to look at kind of the shelter in and of itself and say, okay, um, for this shelter, did removing breed labels make a difference? And the more studies that show that removing mm -hmm. breed labels made a difference, the the more. Uh, proof there is that kind of holistically you it adds to the the statement that holistically mm -hmm. it will make a difference um i don't so my study can't say this will be the result in every shelter sure. but it adds to the literature that 
allows us to say, okay, in many shelters on that individual basis, they have been able to make, it has made a difference in getting the dogs adopted faster. Um, both mine and Dr. Gunter's uh, studies found that regardless of the fact that it, they are very different shelters. Um, yeah. And that's super important because coming from a, from a culture and a city and a state where there are so many animals on the streets, like homeless animals, you get those homeless animals, they go into a foster home or a shelter. Uh, we transport them to a lot of places in the North, like New York, Minnesota. Um, that eight days makes a difference whether we can pull other dogs from the streets. So it's a life, you know, it might not sound like a lot to people listening, but if you know the system, you're going to say that's the difference between the life and death of, of other dogs and cats. So it's super important and kudos to you for taking that on, figuring it out and, um, you know, and adding adding space in your shelters for more dogs to come in from, from the streets, essentially. Yeah, no, I, and um, yeah, the I think that's the important thing is the more the the higher turnover rate in terms of having a dog placed in the shelter and then placed out of the shelter. Um, when I look, I did look for my thesis at where the dogs came from for Bidoe. Bidoe is limited intake. Um, they do, but they pull from a couple of different locations. And so one of the big ways that they get dogs is through transports, as you mentioned, they, they get them from places such as Louisiana and Mississippi, if you're looking within the states, but then also they've they've increased um, kind of disaster rescue missions. So, you know, they, they pulled from after Hurricane Irma, there were dogs that came up um, after a number of hurricanes, whether they be in the continental U.S. or if they be in the Caribbean um, a lot or Puerto Rico, we, we've they've pulled dogs um, from there. And the faster you can get a dog out of the shelter first it's less stressful for the dog in general a lot of times because there is a level of stress associated with um with a dog being at a shelter mm -hmm. environment um for for uh some of the dogs but then also it helps get the um uh it helps open up room for dogs that are coming from these types of rescue missions that gives them more space to and not just rescue, but day-to-day -day, um, uh, day -day intake for places where they're, where the shelters are just overflowing with yeah. dogs. So there's, it kind of just helps the cycle along in general. Absolutely. Well, you're basically speeding up the cycle by eight days. And eight days yeah. is a huge difference. A street animal who's on his, maybe his last breath, he's, you know, 50% underweight. He's got a broken leg and he's, you know, suffering eight days is a long time for an animal or anything that is suffering. I mean, you, you think about being in pain, five minutes can be a, a long time to suffer, but eight days is, is significant. So that's fabulous. Yeah. And if we can get your program, um, I guess, spread across the U S to all of these shelters, um, how wonderful that it would be, um, collectively to to increase that or to decrease that time that the animals are staying in the shelters. Well, you have to wonder how it would impact like a city like Denver, where there's a breed restriction on, you know, pit bulls. And how do you how do you it comes back to how do you define that? You know, a dog might be labeled a pit bull, but it might not, which would would 
um, likely decrease its chances of being adopted, unfortunately. Um, but how do you even define that? Because a pit bull is not even a, a recognized breed. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my little dog, my Benjamin, who came to us, and he was like a small lab. He doesn't have an ounce of lab in him. He's got 13 other things. But had he been labeled uh, um, Staffordshire Terrier or Bull Terrier, you know, what are his chances of getting out of the shelter? Instead, he was a lab. You know, so it's it it unfortunately makes him more attractive. Well, and there are all the restrictions too, the housing restrictions. Yes. You know, in in Houston, you cannot live in certain places where there are um, bully breeds. Bully breeds, and and so in in Houston, when you in eighty percent or when shelters have fifty to eighty percent of these bully breeds in their cages, that reduces the number of of um, adoptions significantly. So taking these labels off, if, if you're not sure of the label, at least taking them off really does the animal world a lot of good. It, it helps. It helps the whole rescue community. Oh, completely agree. And, and you know, by the way, didn't, by the way, did remove breed labels, but they still did put, you know, I think what, what they now use is small, medium, or large mm-hmm. mixed breed. That makes um, sense. You know, they, regardless of if it's clear that maybe it's not a mixed breed (laughs) or if, um, you know, just because I think, as you mentioned that their breed restrictions or housing restrictions, or there's a lot of areas in New York city that, that, um, limit dogs based off of either size or breed label. Mm -hmm. And so even though it's not as in Denver, where there's kind of the city wide ban, there is kind of that what New York does is allow kind of each landlord to make their own decision or each co-op. And um, I think if you have that, you if you put down on your application, honestly, that you've just been told that it's a mixed breed dog, um, it helps uh, yes. and it makes it, uh, you know, and housing is very competitive in a lot of places and it makes a difference that um, dogs or when an owner applies, the dog is not a barrier to getting into their housing. And Absolutely. also when it comes to reducing the cycle of, of turnover within shelters or entrance to shelters, you know, a big reason that dogs are sometimes brought to a shelter is because of housing issues. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we can do to reduce those issues, I think the better. Mm-hmm. I so um, agree. Nicole, is there ongoing, are there ongoing studies around this? Um, and do you see this kind of creeping across America, this idea of, well, you've said that it already said that it's it's happened in some shelters, but are more people buying into this? I think more people over time are. And the more that we, I was, when I've presented this research in the past, I have gotten feedback that there are, of hearing, I've heard stories of shelters that still do use breed labels and do assign labels to breeds um, uh, as they come in. And so they... Um, it's, it certainly isn't a practice that's been extinguished by any any regard, but it it is also, I think, as more studies like this are done, um, more people will continue to realize kind of the benefit of kind of taking off that label mm-hmm. and giving the dog a chance to shine on their own without having a, a breed associated with them. So I think... Um, I do think it's continuing to catch on and it's a trend that will continue to see increase. Um, I, I, it, unfortunately, I don't think it's been eradicated yet, the practice or anything, but it is also, I think, a, re- a recommended best practice for shelters. So hopefully over time, 
more and more shelters will follow suit um, per kind of ASPCA and other um, shelter organization guidance. I'm thinking of our good friends out in New York. Are How you too? Yeah. How I Met, met my, my Dog. dog. <laughs> and they have the best matching uh, online platform for people with animals, people with pets. So it's like a dating service for people with pets. You go on, you answer these really cool questions. It's fun just to go mm-hmm. through the interview, um, but you go through all these cool questions about your lifestyle. Um, are you a couch potato? Do you want on Saturday morning, do you want to get up at 6 a.m. and throw the Frisbee or at 6 a.m. are you rolling in and you're setting your alarm for 4 p.m.? You know, I mean, what's your lifestyle like? You know, would you rather um, go to the beach or are you watching movies in the afternoon? So and and then you um, and then if you have a dog to adopt, you you put the profile of this dog on this this platform and then you're matched um, the the. The platform, the algorithms and the platform match people with pets without ever seeing the dog and without ever listing um, breeds. And it's it's very interesting because they go a step further than what you're talking about. And that is there are no photos. The dog doesn't see a photo of you and you don't see a photo of the dog. You're matched specifically on lifestyles. And they've had a great success rate, you know, where the shelters might see uh, a certain percentage of dogs come back because this one looks so cute and he's so sweet and you get him home and he is active and you are not. That's an issue, right? Um, or, 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 and so it just, it removes a lot of that guesswork and it's not based on looks. It's based totally on lifestyle, which has been, which in its results have been a very high success rate. Oh, that's fantastic. That sounds like a very interesting um, yeah, service. You need to connect with them. One. Yeah, because yeah. they have great data and research behind their both. Um, one of the ladies who started this is is very scientifically driven, data driven. And so I think you'd enjoy talking to her. But I, I love that we're talking about animals in such a way that it's important that they wind up in the best of homes. And that's what we're doing here. We're talking about them um, as if they count, as if they have a voice, um, you know, and, and again, you taking the labels off gives these animals a chance to get in homes more quickly. Well, I, oh, absolutely. And it also diminishes those trends too. Like people after the um, Taco Bell commercials, Yo Quiero Taco Bell, everybody wanted a Chihuahua. Well, Chihuahuas need special handlers, you know? I have a dog that's part Chihuahua, so I can say that. They get a little growly. So you might want something cute and little, or you might see a Dalmatian after, you know, 101 Dalmatians. There was a run on them. That's That also requires a special kind of owner. So I, I think that idea of, of matching lifestyle, personality, and removing the the breed label um, helps in so many ways. It's, you know, it's kind of, um, it's a complex, it seems like it's a simple thing, but it's, it's actually very complex. No, absolutely. And um, I think I didn't, this was not in the scope of my thesis, but I I have seen that, you know, there's been, there has been research around the question of how much screening of an owner do you do before you adopt the dog? And there, um, but actually what they found is that outside of a few key items that it's best to, that it's kind of in some ways up to chance once you hit a few key items. I think one of the biggest ones being, of course, does your landlord allow dogs? Uh, that one you should certainly check for. But um, uh, other than that, I think a lot of times 
the less barriers you put in the way for a dog to be adopted, the odds are still that the dog will work out, um, that the owner is going to be responsible and, and seeking the, the puppy. Um, of course, you can't take away intuition or, or gut feeling if, if you feel like something's wrong or something might not be a good fit. But, and, you know, we used to, when I did a lot of volunteer work at a shelter at, at Bidoe, you know, they're, they're, the process to adopt a dog went through a couple of different phases because we used to have a pretty, uh, there used to be a pretty extensive interview process. And I think over time, they've kind of removed some of those um, interview, they've shortened the interview process so that it's more if you're interested um, and you want a dog and it seems like a good fit, you, you take the dog home. Because the, the more barriers you put in the way, you actually could act, be preventing not just an ill-equipped owner, but you could also be preventing a very good owner or a very loving owner. Um, and I think thinking about that dog ownership looks and feels differently to different people um, is always a good thing to keep in mind. Um, however, of course, it's also good to keep in mind that puppies, as someone who had a pu has had a puppy this year, puppies are a lot of work. <laughs> uh, regard, uh, regardless of breed label, uh, I think the lifestyle thing is a great point because I think you can think to yourself, oh, I know I'm ready for, you know, I can take on a puppy. I know it's going to be a lot of work. And it, you still don't realize just how much energy sometimes <laughs> these, these uh, puppies have. And having so. had old dogs and puppies, I'll take the old ones any day, say any day. <laughs> I know puppies are what everybody is attracted to, but there's just something great about getting a six or an eight-year-old dog that just wants to come into your house, chill, already knows how to go outside and do his business, is grateful for all their meals. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of um, rewarding things about adopting a senior. And I feel like it's somewhat overlooked in our society. Oh, absolutely. And, and even um, dogs that are a little older, like in terms of like the two to three mm -hmm. range, you know, even then you've, you've overcome a lot of the, the puppy phase, but you still get a relatively young dog. And um, there's a lot of different life stages for a dog that you can adopt at outside of being a, a puppy. Um, we do, me and my husband did get a puppy this year, but the puppy, and I can attest the puppy is, we love him dearly, but he is a ton of work. And they said, it, it, you know, again, it, no one can actually predict because on average, the, they, they predicted he would be kind of a medium energy dog. And I would challenge that. that, that <laughs> he's, he's, he is a uh, very high energy most of the time. Oh he, he's gosh. sleeping now, but uh, he loves his play. He loves running around. So um, even when you think it might, it, the, yeah, you're, you're choosing for your lifestyle. Sometimes it, it, there's a bit of surprises. In there. I think that's true of all puppies too, because not only are they puppies, they're full of energy generally, and mm -hmm. they're, they don't know their manners yet. Like much like a two or three year old child, right? They've got, they've got the enough, enough intelligence, but not the decision-making capabilities. So, um, yeah, any, but then you don't know what personality that puppy's going to have. And it doesn't, People say you can count on the breed, but I don't think that you can because I think of Westies and they're West Highland Terriers. They're terrorists, right? But uh, the majority of them. So I think Tina and I can really talk about this honestly. Like I had the calmest Westie ever, and she might have had the, the most terror, terroristic <laughs> Westie ever. But that's all in the same breed. So you really you can't look at that breed um, and, and, and it, it bodes well 
for the larger for adoptions for large or I'm sorry. Right. Um bodes well for older dog adoptions because you do know their characteristics then. You do you you can't you they've probably been in a foster home or a shelter where they can their their caretakers can say, yeah, this is a mellow dog or no, this dog likes to run. You know, it gets outside and he can go for a good hour and, and not slow down. So um really if people are interested in adopting, you know, look at those older dogs because they are they are more predictable. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, oh, go sorry. Ahead, I was, go ahead, Nicole. No, I was just about to say, I think um, the, the, during the pandemic, there's been a push around fostering. And I do think hope, hopefully that um, that has done, that has helped some older dogs get adopted yeah. because yes, you've been able to see their lifestyle. You've been able to experience, there's been someone who can attest to the experience with living with the dog. Um, and it'd be really interesting to look at um, you know, in future research about kind of differences in length of stay with, I'm sure there's people doing research on these things, like how did the pandemic transform this? All of this research, just as a note, was conducted pre-COVID-19. So, um, you know, Bidewe was much more a shelter, kind of a brick and mortar shelter model then. I do believe they've increased their foster placements since, since this study. Um, and so I think sheltering as a whole has been a bit transformed in terms of placement and that there's some really interesting research down the line to do. Well, we hope there is. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Well, good. Anything else? I was just going to say, what's next? Mm-hmm. You know, this is great research. And you're talking to two girls who live yeah. in, in an audience, you know, mostly that live in the South where animals are deemed a nuisance, basically. You know, they're they're on the streets and they're so prevalent that they've become almost a nuisance, not in our hearts, but in the city and how the city and a lot of communities look at them. So what you're doing is so far on the other end of the spectrum, which is wonderful because hopefully we can, we can catch up, you know, and, and, um, and meet some of these uh, programs in, in a more functional way, but what's next for you and, and your, your, your partner, I guess, that you mentioned earlier. Um, is there anything exciting coming? Uh, so for me personally, I am uh, continuing to help out with some of the Thinking Dog uh, Center studies. Um, we, I think there have been some uh, additional efforts that Sarah is leading on looking at different aspects of shelter life. My guess is um, down the line, there will be not just, not from the Thinking Dog Center specifically, but overall, there should be some great research coming out in the next couple of years, kind of looking at how COVID has impacted the shelter world. Um, I do think when it comes to kind of blending the habits of the, you know, Northeast and then the South, I think we were, that conversation was happening pre the pandemic. Um, and then, of course, things were slightly limited during the pandemic um, as, however, as vaccination rates increase and and kind of cross-state travel and things open up again, I think you're going to start seeing a, an increase of those conversations and um, a lot of look at kind of, I, I think there's a question about will there be kind of a boomerang effect if, you know, lots of people invested in puppies or other types of dogs during the pandemic, will there be kind of a time where there are, there's an intake, an, in, an uptick in shelter living mm-hmm. um, and looking at the different regional trends and then talking about ways to just improve, continue to improve the model. So 
I think there's a lot of it really interesting stuff um, around the around the corner to take a look at. And I'm just excited to continue to learn a, more and see some of the findings. Fabulous. Good. I think no matter what podcast um, we do or or um, what we talk about, it usually comes down to adopt, don't shop. You know, it truly does. Because if, if more people absorbed this surplus of animals that we have, especially in the South, um, a lot of these issues would just go away. So for anybody out there considering a pet, just, just go to the shelter. You can get a puppy. You can get a two-year-old. You can get a, a well-trained, you know, five- or six-year-old that's going to be a, a great, quiet companion. So... I think that there's something for everybody, and it's it's it seems to always come back to that that we need more more adoptions in our country. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Nicole, you are our last guest mm-hmm. of the season, so yes. I think what Tina oh. just said is a great way to end our podcast season. And um, you know, adopt, don't shop. We can't we can't get any loftier than that. Yes. <laughs> yep. And we've enjoyed doing these podcasts. We're so glad that we got to talk to you and all of our other guests earlier this year. And we're going to um, to um, um, bring back the podcast in the first quarter of 2022. But like Tama said, this you're, the, you're our last guest of the season. So oh. thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I, I hope I uh, help close it out on a strong note. Oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yes. Yep. It's so good for people in our community to see what other people are doing in other states, you know, and, and, and to really put a light on that disparity and you're studying dog cognition and we're trying to just give them clean food and water. Mm-hmm. So, um, we got, we've got to catch up and we will for sure. Yeah. Thank you for helping us. Thank you for moving the needle on animal welfare. Thank you, Nicole. Nice Thank you. you. Okay. okay take care. Bye. Bye.